Hello. I'm Alexis Hyde. I'm Erica Wong. And this is Hide or Practice. This week, y'all, I'm so excited. Are you just... Just hold on to your seats or put your seatbelt on. I don't know. What are the things? Do them. Uh, whatever you need to do to feel prepared. And if that involves a mug of hot cocoa so you can feel comfortable, like do that. I want to give you like a second. And then I'm going to introduce political theorist, Sissy Fu. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a delight. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and why they are so lucky to have you in their ears this week? Such a pleasure and privilege to be here. Thank you, Alexis and Erica, for inviting me to just share the general state of how my mind is processing the world right now. Um, I'm Sissy Fu. I was born in Hong Kong and uh, have since been steadily moving geographically east, first to the east coast of Canada, rather the west coast of Canada, first to the west coast of Canada, then to the east coast of the US, and then across the Atlantic to the UK, and then to the Netherlands. And yeah, so currently situated um, back in Canada, the first country that I've moved back to on the unceded and ancestral and traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples. And uh, very grateful to be here and also grateful to have the affordances of the pandemic to have a moment to reflect on what this journey has been like for me. So, yeah, here I am. I like Alexis's face. (laughs) Y'all can't see it. One day we're going to do a video podcast release and y'all see that like I just I'm just facial experience based facial expressions all the time. I get excited, but I don't want to make noises to like interrupt. So I've got to, I've got to do something to emote. <laughs> <laughs> so we, the one where we're recording podcasts is either me with the face of like, wow, or there's a lot of nodding and smiling. We a lot of nodding and smiling. There's a lot of nodding and smiling. Um, yes, yeah, Sissy's done a lot of things to see. I was introducing her to Alexis before Sissy was has jumped onto this call and I said to Alexis, Sissy is one of the smartest people I have ever met in my life. Um there are many different types of smart though, Erica. I'd you're like so smart. Kind of smart. Like I, I think so quickly <laughs> that I literally like m- my sprinting is too slow for your brain. <laughs> I was like, I remember I used to have to really think about what you've said after our meetings and I'm like, what's what happened now? What? And then I have to like look at my notes and I was like, sorry, I don't even think I wrote that down correctly. And then I was like, shit. Oh, didn't and now that. I'm thinking maybe there is a little bit too much intentional opacity in what I say. Oh. So there's some reflection that has happened then. That's, that, that's what it sounds yeah. like. So what is there to know in the world? Hmm. And if that which can be known is always already mediated by an, an, our interpretations of the world, then I suppose that there will always be something that is a little bit obscure. Because even when we are experiencing the same phenomenon, say thought stream even, 
there's always something that we don't get to express fully for pure, uh, unadulterated understanding. And I think that's probably why it is so interesting to think about thinking and also to think of ways of knowing rather than trying to capture full information, complete knowledge. Yep. I don't even know what complete full knowledge could be. I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. Holy amazing. Sorry. Keep going. I am thrilled. I just was not anticipating this on my Monday morning. And I am like, Erica, thank you for this. Wait, how did you guys meet? I, you know, I need a lot of help when I was doing my PhD because, you know, I'm not very smart. So then I was enlisting really smart people to be like, maybe you can. It's so interesting. That's a smart ex- person thing to do, though, by the way. Like, like it's, it's interesting when to be like, I need help is a very smart person thing to do. I don't know if it is, but I tried to explain what I was doing for, for my research. And then it's always interesting to hear how people say it back to you and you're like oh yeah that sounds much clearer than what I you know I mean I, I probably took like six minutes to explain this to Sissy and she like summed it up in three sentences it's like I'm gonna take that because that's a lot more concise than what I just said like the whole six <laughs> it's minutes a new career. yeah um I wouldn't say help Erica um I greatly enjoyed how you approached just you know sent an email and uh, we went for coffee and at that that was brilliant at that point I think uh, you were in the UK visiting Canada. Mm. Yes. So um, yeah, it's like a coffee chat. It's fantastic. And it's so important to find and actively seek out interlocutors. Otherwise there is a lot of noise, right? And there's so much input in the world, but when we intentionally try to find someone and look for a fit, I think that's special and it takes time. And it also takes kind of, um, for lack of a better word, um, social courage for a lot of potential social failures. So I think where we find a match, that's great. Yeah. A lot of failures. I think failure is a good thing, though, even though it's like really hard at the time. But I think you sometimes just have to hear. It's like, I don't think. I think I've said what I think I is like in my brain. And then like you hear what other people are saying back to you. And like, that is completely not what I mean. Like not even, and it's like, how did we get there? That's so interesting. It's like, hmm, failed on that front. It's like, retract, retract, retract. It's like, I don't even understand how, anyway. But that's actually how we met. It was, I, I emailed her and she very kindly was like, okay. And I was like, awesome, yes. Got another one to say yes to me. <laughs> It takes a lot of tenacity to do a PhD and complete a PhD these days. So I think um, any way to also engage with somebody's train of thought in the state of the world, I'm game. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's, you know, we've had a lot of conversations amongst ourselves about this. The learnings of COVID. What do you think you had learned in the last 20, some odd months about COVID in the many hats that you wear? Hmm. Um, For the moment, and this is still something that I'm processing daily, also because we are still in COVID. Mm. um, I think the opportunity to really unlearn collectively. 
So at the point when COVID hit, I was uh, responsible for curriculum and colleagues and um, students at a university. And uh, very lucky to be in an art and design education setting. So I think on the one hand, there is the challenge of how to deliver practice-based, practice-led curriculum online. On the other hand, when everybody is unsettled, I think that particular anarchic nature of those people in the world who create and manifest imagination as a career or a potential career really can come together and figure things out. So um, that particular hiccup that is the pandemic is that propelled a different mode of pedagogy, but also mode of transferring learning was exhausting, discombobulating, but also something that we could work on together. So yeah, that was, that was tough, but rewarding and at some points also fun. One other thing that I learned in that process is that institutions need to be more people-centered and health-centered uh, all the way from um, physical health, public health, but also mental health and the way in which we come together for a collective communal health um, or whenever crisis or crises hit. Yeah, I saw it all as um, one big rehearsal for um, that which has still uh, yet to come, whatever that is. Yep. I like that. That's because, you know, it does feel like we're still a little bit in a holding pattern and that we're not quite executing on things. But what do you think? Actually, all right, I've got like twofold on this question because I do like what you were saying about people who manifest uh, imagination as a profession. I think that's really. Um, the very good oh, way. Eloquent. Of, I know it's such a good way of putting it. The wordsmithing is chef's kiss. Um, but I think there is a way to a time right now where we can reevaluate. Re and I think that some people are doing it more successfully than others. Is there anyone that you're seeing that you find is, is using this time wisely and executing, even if it's not quite for this like future where we'll actually be able to apply these learnings, but like, do you feel it, find that anybody's on that journey at the moment? Hmm. I, I hope I can count myself as one of those people who yes, are you can. Um, at least not resisting what is happening. So I think um, one part of being able to move with the times is not to, not to yearn for another time. Um, so um, that adventurousness, uh, perhaps, I see in um, a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues, I see it in students, um, even those who struggle. And if we understand what we are doing, especially in a university setting, as a studying together that requires a struggling together always, 
actually a kind of collective struggling in itself would then shift uh, the systems of thought and the parameters of making that otherwise would be a matter of gatekeeping. So if there is something about the manifestation of the imagination that should also apply to the way that we think about the structures of knowing that we're all aiming to do in an educational setting. And one, a, one person um, whom I see studying and struggling like this most recently is the five-year-old son of a childhood friend in Hong Kong. So I got to spend some time with little Alex over the weekend. Uh, he is uh, going to um, Montessori um, kindergarten at the moment. And just seeing or witnessing the way that he is traversing things that he doesn't understand reminds me of what my colleagues and I have been doing the, these past 21 months or so. Approaching something with a learner's mind, asking questions, not based on assumptions. I think that's something that we could perhaps all yearn to learn together. Otherwise, um, the holding pattern and the desire to return to norms, like whose norms um, for the benefit of whom, right? Whereas if you are experiencing something new for the first time, such as making a relationship with an adult stranger <laughs> and playing a card game, that supports one in spelling. Yeah, one learns a lot just by um, how synapses fire and how connections are made and those associations which might be all over the place that might actually create the world that one needs at the moment in order to continue. So yeah, I'd say yes, I, um, Alex. I, Alex I feel like <laughs> we, we had that more so at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was so unexpected and nobody really knew what to do. And I think mm -hmm. people were more open to doing things differently and wanting to be open-minded. And then, so I hear that phrase a lot, returning to, to normal, which I just, I, was, I always think that it's like, I don't know why it's returning. And I don't think it's like that abnormal. Like there's still a lot of things that we do that is part of our daily lives from like even pre-pandemic, like, you know, we still, go grocery shopping like some things actually haven't changed whatsoever there is a difference in how we interact with each other but I find that phrase to be quite weird actually it's like return to normal but it's like the normalcy that is defined is this comfort that we have defined for a very long time but it's not but like this this way of interacting with other people like washing your hands all the time and being more cautious isn't like 
not normal, you know, it's not like we've decided to all stand inside a hole and scream into mud. Like that would be slightly different, right? That's a different method of engagement. But we're not doing that. Like we we have a mask and we have protective Speak gear. For yourself. I love my mud <laughs> hole. <laughs> that was like the only thing I could clear up my brain at the time. But it's like that would be slightly different. Yeah. If it wasn't that, like where it's you still see each other, even if like two thirds of your face is covered, you know, you're just using more hand sanitizer, but in a way, it's not bad as well. You're just being more hygienic or sanitary, or we're just more cautious. I think, which is cautious, okay, yeah. okay too. Yeah. Or maybe as human beings, our functions are defined um, by our bio- biology, right? Um, and then there are all these ideologies that make us, you know, um, yearn towards cleanliness. Say. Um, so yes, the standards of hygiene might have uh, gone up because of the pandemic. And there are different protocols or ways in which we can or cannot keep ourselves clean. And that in itself, um, it's not so much abnormal exactly um, as Erica mentioned, but uh, it requires us to re-familiarize or familiarize with new things. Um, I, I think that's what it is. So, oh no, you know, how disruptive is it that we need to do these extra things? But in fact, all these extra things, it just aim towards the same goal, right? Um, keep bacteria out or, you know, whatever, when we wash hands anyway. How are kids taught to wash hands, right? How are people body trained? Yep. So yeah, a different kind of training but training towards the same thing. It's interesting how we have to relearn how to wash our hands properly. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Find the vocal cords as we're doing it. Yeah. Right. Well, it's funny because it's the, the idea of like refamiliarizing ourselves with is, it is very, I love this idea of like seeing it through like little baby Alex's eyes um, that because it is, we do, we learn things and we get lazy. This happens in everything. You know, we get lazy if we do the same workout for too long. We get lazy if, you know, we're, when we're driving the same commute, we kind of like tune out. We, you know, we get into that kind of like muscle memory and having to re-engage with these areas that we're not used to engaging in with like, okay, like, yes, like hand washing or like being empathetic towards like my space towards another human being or empathetic about like what my or what somebody else's space might involve like me, who is this person, who are their relations that I might have to be careful with for exposure. And I feel like that is a lot of brain space energy to take up because it is like, we're so used to some, so many of these things having moved to the back of our mind of just being, you know, white noise. But it is interesting because I do like the idea of you know, not returning to normal, because I think there's so many things that have been really positive in these reevaluations, like people are reevaluating their relationship with their own spaces, and a lot of art has been purchased. People are reevaluating their relationship with their gardens, and people are like cooking and composting and figuring out ways to do things that are like more self-reliant or focusing on their friends or figuring out like, this is where I need more interaction in my life or the arts are important or reading is important in ways that it's so easy to just kind of slough off and push off until next week because we're too busy and I don't want to return to normal for a lot of those things 
I don't know. I like, I like thinking about other people though. And like what's going on with them and those kind of empathy. And I think a lot of people have a lot of hard times with that because especially in America, when I know neither of you guys are there, but here, and I can't help but speak from my own experience of Americans. Um, people kind of really want to do that kind of individualist my way all the time. And it becomes very difficult for people to surpass that like 25, you know, potentially decades of, of learning and habit of a way of thought, even with like in regards to arts and institutions and universities of how we engage with students, how we engage with our communities, who are we serving? Why are we serving them? Mm. Um, and, and what it means to be of service in those capacities. Absolutely. And also if what we are doing is to nurture, um, whether it's uh, nurturing creativity, talent, or health, or nurturing ourselves, our plants, the people around us, or society at large. If we approach um, the coming together uh, of desires as a nurturing um, for sustaining into the future, um, if then it's less about um, how productive we are. Right? It's a, a different vector along which we can think about what meaning should take priority at any one time. So yeah, taking that step back, even retreating into one's own individual space or um, the bubble of one's friends and family, it's, it's a good exercise. Yeah, about time. Do you think that people are now like, they've done it and then they're like, I'm done. But for a while now, it's like, it's been like 20 Some people months. Are. Yeah, absolutely just ready to do things um, as things were um, before um, March 2020. Yep, absolutely ready. Um, and then, of course, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, right? Um, and uh, that whole argument uh, maybe betrays a crisis in authority in general, um, whether it has to do with political authority or otherwise. Yeah, which is also um, provides interesting food for thought. I think that in itself also nurtures a particular kind of discursive space. Yeah, if you're thinking it, say it, and then let's discuss it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's very hard to address differences. In your head, do you have any anticipations of what that next thing could be that we're preparing for, that we're considering and all of these directions and choices and shifts might be pointing to? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just listening to the radio and news coverage of COP26 in Glasgow, I, I think this is the first COP uh, conference that extended beyond the um, one week mark post-conference. So um, I would say the next big thing, but really um, the <laughs> total big thing, the only big event really um, has to do with um, the state of the earth. Um, yeah, for human beings, yes. So yeah, climate uh, action. And it would be great if the next big thing is a buildup of these small exercises and rehearsals, right? Such that different pockets of um, 
strategies and thoughts and actions slowly and surely collate into something that is much more collaborative. So um, isolated conversations might last a semester if it's based on a course or a conversation um, for a podcast, which would be X many minutes. But in general, seeing the theme come back, hearing the conversations move together and is starting to converge. Anything from um, universal solutions, global solutions or um, protocols, um, those that are set by the UN, adopted by countries that sign on to protocols, to the ways in which individuals are more conscious about the way that their groceries are bought or delivered, the containers, um, to material scientists, um, really trying to find ways to not harm the earth and to reduce waste right? all around. I think, yeah, it's a slow coming together seen as I, if we expand the timeline, um, there is, if we like to call it that progress, but I think um, it is harder and harder not to understand that as something that is a collective endeavor climate action. So I'm curious because as I was watching the coverage and the people outside of COP26 were saying that governments aren't doing enough, they're lying, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And, you know, you talk about the protocols and the policies which is what happens inside the building with the protocols and the policymakers trying, and they have a whole series of things. I'm just calling them things that they have to abide by. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's like too many things that we can even go into, but you know, like, and how are they using taxpayers' money? How are they abiding to whatever else that they need? There's so many things that has to be considered that may or may not like the protesters may or may not be aware of. So therefore, climate action is not at the quote unquote top of the list because there are other things like safety, for instance, um, that governments have to actually be, I don't know if the word responsible for, but they, you know, they actually have to do something about. So there's this really large, I feel like there's a gap between what happens inside the building and what is happening outside the building because people don't their their value or like where they're setting their value is very different so how do we come together if you know you see something like that like how do we collectively have that conversation so you're you can even try to be not inside outside but like in some place together and you know, I mean, you are in this place together, but like one is actually outside the building. Well, many are outside the building and many are inside the building. How do the people like actually integrate with each other to have that conversation? It's hard to be a policymaker. And and I'm not trying to say like, oh, they're like, you know, the gremlins of the world. I'm just saying that 
they it's hard to be a policymaker and it's also you know you also need the people to go and voice be like you're not doing enough but like how how is it possible to come together is it possible to come together I think it is and in many ways I think we have Um, so um, maybe a step back about uh, levels of analysis Um, when I mentioned climate action I include those uh, in the building and those outside the building and also those um, who are um, listening in on the conversation from abroad right Um, so the way that I'm thinking about climate action um, are all these uh, individual institutional uh, corporate, um, nonprofit, and um, citizen actions around the world. Um, and sometimes what we're doing is conscious. Um, when we lobby for something, it is very intentional. Um, we can also understand advocacy as putting pressure on or persisting with an agenda not necessarily against an agenda or against particular performances, even though the discourse itself um, might uh, focus on that at any one point. So um, that said, um, collective conversations, yes, would be wonderful if we could have um, multi-stakeholder conversations uh, that somehow traverse the difficulties of power dynamics and allow for everybody to have Um, an equal voice or equitable voice around the table. If that table becomes too large, we might risk not hearing each other. The distance might be too big, even if it is around a circular table. So how can we imagine um, a conversation with actual content around um, the same metaphorical table? That's something that I had uh, the good fortune to be able to spend some time thinking about when I was doing my PhD. This was back in the UK. Um, But the case study um, that I took at that point is the 1999 WTO ministerial in Seattle. I think where the first large scale protest, uh, which is um, very vibrant um, and colorful um, and imaginative, if not artistic, took place. Uh, My thesis, by the way, is on uh, coalition building. So finding a new framework for thinking about coalition politics at the dawn of new social movements that are less about having a larger portion of the spoils after a particular political decision has fallen on one side or the other. So um, trying to find a way to think about politics and political winnings, not as one pie or a zero sum game, but that political expression in itself has value and the coming together to protest or to fight for something or to act is not and cannot only be measured by whether one is able to change policy or to make new policy. So um, once again, thinking about incremental steps towards political change. And uh, the table metaphor is used amongst uh, many other um, philosophers by Hannah Arendt, uh, a German Jewish political theorist. She insists on uh, 
not being clouded um, by philosophy when she is thinking about how to understand politics. So, um, yeah, it is because of the respect that I have for her thinking, the way that her, she lived her life with integrity and allowed for her thought to change as she experienced migrations um, and being a refugee at different places, et cetera, in the world um, at, the, at the dawn of World War II, that I also come to identify as a political theorist, that whatever it is that I think, whatever is abstracted in order to be processed conceptually, to give some direction to what can be done in the world, is something that is always practicable and actionable. That would be my definition of what a political theorist does. I hope that I'm doing some part of it, if always falling short. So back to the more metaphorical table and the way that we come together. Um, and this is where maybe um, my interest in art and design education comes in. Um, norms shape forms, but forms also shape norms. Right? So if we're able to come together in a different way or come up with a conceptual structure that allows for different imaginative manifestations, then it is more likely that the norm can shift in a way that is not only directed by power, ideology, authority. Or we might have a renewed sense of the way in which each of us can participate in the building of an authority just coming right back to the root of the word. Um, what does it mean to author oneself in the world? What does it mean then to publish, to create publics or to create new publics? And how do we find our audience, right? So all these um, questions and concerns that inhere in being able to manifest ourselves through speech and action and movement in the world. That might help us think outside of the ways in which those who are vested with the power and authority um, as the leader of a particular country or city or university then must take up one's responsibility and responsiveness only in one way within a particular tier of individuals who would somehow negotiate the terms of how everybody for whom one is responsible can or cannot enter into the conversation or can or cannot live. That on the one hand maybe um, overstates the authority and the power of any one um, representative. And what we might also have witnessed, especially through COVID, is the way in which everyone leads in some way. Back to what Alexa, uh, Alexa was mentioning about how perhaps there's more of an individualist quality to the way in which um, US Americans have come to think about one's spheres of agency or um, one's spheres of action. Um, and uh, there are uh, more collective cultures around the world. I think one way or the other, 
um, whatever um, gave rise to the way that we choose to want to live and what we yearn to be familiar with. There is something about making decisions for ourselves because there, there is no precedence to a pandemic that is applicable to COVID in, yeah, I think, um, and I'm hesitating because I know I'm calculating the number of years and the average lifespan of people and who is the oldest person in the world. It's very unlikely that anybody is living through a, a second pandemic right now. So um, when all, not so much, not all norms are being thrown out the window, but um, all familiarity and ways of doing and knowing and um, even making decisions um, are suspended somewhat. And we're all leading in some way. The way that we come together and discuss um, which particular vaccine for those of us who have a choice um, between vaccines or among vaccines, um, you know, which might be good or better or worse for people of a particular age group. The coming together and the discussion in itself, it's not so much that um, we are the people developing the vaccines and we have the full scientific input to inform our decisions. But uh, the conversation in itself is a, a practice of making a census communist, but that is taken from Immanuel Kant, um, an enlightenment uh, philosopher, who actually bases um, aesthetics as the root of ethics and politics and political judgment. Um, or judgment um, first. Um, you know, how do we decide that something is beautiful? Well, somebody would make a claim and that there would be a discussion, right? And then um, a certain um, dimensions of how we start deciding the contours of what constitutes a beauty comes to be. So it's always through discussion and it requires more than one person um, to actually come to some consensus um, or in his words, um, a communal sense and that communal sense shifts. If you admit more people around the circle, if one is more inclusive of different cultures and tastes, languages, social linguistics, um, we come to different definitions. Right? And I think the exciting thing about this mode of um, taste making is that it allows for individual interpretations of the world to come into the conversation, even if it is to be rejected later on. But also, one also gets to um, review and revisit the ways in which we have always just perhaps um, inclined towards something without properly um, accounting for it or questioning it. It's an invitation. It's like the best kind of encounter ever. Yes, sad. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And does require one to be open always. Um, and not to be challenged, not to be questioned, not to be inspected or examined. But uh, perhaps um, we think because we want to have a conversation with oneself and thinking together with others is a way to cultivate that particular practice of thinking. 
Two thumbs up, guys. That's where I'm at. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. I'm just fucking stoked. <laughs> I've been asked to see what you've been reading, watching, or listening to this week. Oh, dear. Um, A lot of different things. What I usually do um, when I wake up, whatever time it is, is to turn on the radio. Um, Where I'm at, it's CBC Radio 1, Vancouver. And uh, at different uh, intervals, there will be different musical input. So if I were to randomly wake up at 4, And uh, through the pandemic, I haven't um, made myself keep a particular schedule. I just need to make sure that I show up for the things that I've committed to um, and hopefully with the energy to be able to engage. So uh, if it's at 4 a.m., then it's classical music of a particular sort. Um, Starting at around 5.30, you'll get local news or weather conditions, you know, how the roads are looking like, you know, and such. And then the programs come in. so I feel like I've been listening to a whole lot of different things, sometimes, you know, in my mind, congealed into one whole kind of um, Northwest sort of sound, um, uh, whether it's verbal or not. Um, I, I do love listening to the radio. Um, and I'm pretty sure the way that I imagine the, how the voices actually look um, would surprise me. But, but I also don't give myself the... Uh, a satisfaction of looking up with the different presenters and what they actually don't. Like. Yeah. I've done it that and I regret it every time. Um, whenever I hear my favorite um, novelist speak, <laughs> um, I realize that, that the voices that I hear from the story itself, I don't really quite um, get to be as freewheeling as they can um, or as they lived in my mind. So, um, maybe monosensory input, um, cultivates the imagination or something. Um, what I have been reading, oh dear, um, I really enjoyed revisiting uh, Nell Painter's A History of White People. Reading it again, after a few years, I'm picking up a whole lot more and realizing that I'm reading it for a purpose the second time through trying to understand how vexed and complex identity formation is and how history and interpretations of history impact current consciousness in many and diverse and unpredictable ways. And uh, what I learned from that is that um, patience and generosity are really, really wonderful gifts. Um, Yeah. And trying to make more of those gifts for the people I care about around me. But um, I think the last thing that I actually read, read, um, maybe if that's also um, the point, uh, is, and I've been reading and rereading this poem, so, um, but that is the last thing that I read. Um, I was sending an email to um, a, a new friend whom I, met at the, whom I met at the Museum of Anthropology um, at the University of British Columbia um, two weekends ago. And uh, somehow it is through Zoom that we kind of 
know uh, of each other's presence, but we haven't really had a direct conversation. But this is um, one of the first in-person um, cultural activities uh, that um, both of us decided to go to. So we met at a workshop and suddenly have this sense of familiarity. <laughs> and uh, yep, exchange email addresses. And this is um, an excerpt from a poem by June Jordan, African-American poet. Um, called on a New Year's Eve. I think it was written in the late 1970s. May I read this? The excerpt please. is not too long. Yes, please. So, an excerpt from John, uh, June Jordan's On a New Year's Eve. Let the world blot, obliterate, remove so-called magnificence so-called almighty, fathomless, and everlasting treasures, wealth, whatever that may be. It is this time that matters. It is this history I care about. The one we make together, awkward, inconsistent, as a lame cat on the loose, or quick as kids, freed by the bell, or else as strictly once, as only life must mean a once upon a time. This really resonated throughout the pandemic. Just need to remind myself to not be held hostage to those things that may or may not come. We inspect drives and desires and also allow myself to dwell in it when I am hit by a particular idea or inspiration, that it's okay to explore, explore openly, and not already set up expectations for an outcome. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And also wow. the image of kids running around. Yeah. Yes, school's oh. out. <laughs> yes. Incredible. Um, Sissy, thank you so much. Um, I'm just a little bit at a loss for words, so that's uh, unprecedented. Um. <laughs> yes, another precedent. Um, Sissy, would you mind telling our lovely listeners where they could find you or your work on the interwebs if they were so inclined? Oh, dear. Don't look me up. Okay, never mind. Don't do it, guys. Leave her alone. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, don't look me up. Um, I am not um, not at all spectacular. Um, well, that is a matter of opinion and perspective. I don't think anybody would agree with you on that, although you are free to think <laughs> that if you'd like. Okay? But I'm going uh, to be special for this moment in this conversation triangle with Alexis and Erica and to... Um, all the listeners of Hyder practice, uh, that hopefully some of the words are taken together or apart, um, yeah, could be a source of comfort, maybe, um, before the moment of listening, and then challenges for things to come. But you set your own challenge, and yeah. 
words are otherwise just words. Yeah. Please, please and thank you. I love it. Susie, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.